Have you ever had one of those days that no matter what you do, no matter what you try to do, it only increases your anxiety? I think of a pastor who was walking down the street one day, and he noticed a very small boy on the other side of the street who was trying to press a doorbell on a house across the street. But the boy was very small, and the doorbell was too high for him to reach. And the pastor watched this little boy's futile efforts for a little while. He stepped towards the curb a little bit and then kind of stepped back, and he finally couldn't take it any longer. He stepped smartly across the street, walked up behind the little fellow, he placed his hand kindly on the child's shoulder, and then he pressed the doorbell for him. And then crouching down to the child's level, the the pastor smiled benevolently and he asked, And now what, my little man? To which the boy replied, Now we run? So how is your anxiety level this morning? Have I just increased it? Have you ever had one of those times that no matter what you try to do, you have the best of intentions, you just can't seem to get it right? And that the peace of God that God promises each one of us seems to be elusive. We don't feel it, we don't experience, and we don't know how to get it. You don't need me to tell you that we live in a stressful world. And that when we add to that our personal stressors to the national and global stressors, it's a wonder any of us can know peace. I joke around our house, I just wish we could go back to the good old days. When every spring my Viking ancestors raided the villages of my British ancestors. (laughs) And it's a wonder that any of them lived and any of us are here today. I can understand why my German ancestors lived. (laughs) And it certainly doesn't help when you see the network commentators comparing our current world events and what's happening in the Middle East to the 30 years war in Europe and the days leading up to World War I and then there's Ebola and the the plagues that we hear about. How can we know and experience the peace that God has promised to his followers when we live in such a stressful time? And when we each have our own set of stressors on top of everything else, and everything seems to be against knowing the peace of God that he wants for us. So please turn, if you have your Bibles open again, to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. In verses 6 through 9, the Apostle Paul gives us what we could call the way to peace. The way to peace. As long as I can remember, one politician after another speaks of what they call a roadmap to peace in the Middle East. I think Henry Kissinger started that clear back in the 60s. And then he was on TV the other night, and I turned, he's still around? It's just amazing, you know, still with the same message. Everybody or a lot of people claim to have a roadmap to peace, even though it's eluded every one of them for thousands of years. However, in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul clearly lays out the way that we can know and experience the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. And the first way is right praying, right praying. We saw that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. This is right praying. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about right thinking. We see that in the next verse, in verse 8. Right thinking. 
Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. Right praying, right thinking, and lastly, we come today to verse 9, right living. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Knowing experiencing God's peace requires right praying, right thinking, and right living. We are to practice certain things. Right living and practicing certain things, and we'll see what those are, is a necessary condition to experience the peace of God that he has for us. You cannot separate right action from right praying. You cannot separate right living from right thinking. You cannot separate inward attitude from outward action and expect to know and experience anything of the peace of God. We spend a lot of time in these passages on spiritual stability talking about right praying and right thinking. And now we come to right living. But I want to approach this first a little bit from the negative because we see that in God's word. Whereas Philippians chapter 4 could be called the peace chapter in scripture where the peace of God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and the God of peace is with us. James chapter 4 could be called the war chapter. So I want to go to the war chapter in James chapter 4 for a little bit. Fourth chapter of James, James chapter 4 beginning at verse 1 because James is going to show us the way to war. How many of you got up this morning and said, I just hope the pastor talks about how we can have war <laughs> this morning. <laughs> but this is necessary to see because it shows us very clearly if our praying is not right, if our thinking is not right, and our practice is not right, then war is the necessary result of that. James is going to show us the way to war. Wrong praying, wrong thinking, wrong action. Just the opposite of what we see in, in Philippians chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1, James introduces us to conflict and the lack of peace. And he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? There, he's not talking about church members. He's talking about our members, our hands, our feet, those kinds of things. The, that are, the source is the pleasure that's waging war in our bodies. He asks a rhetorical question. Where is this conflict coming from? What is the source? And then James goes on to show us the causes of the conflicts. And he begins with all things with wrong praying. Wrong praying. Verse 2. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. I don't think he's talking about physical, literal murder there. I think he's talking about the same thing Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you hate your brother, you have already murdered him. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not ask, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You pray with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Their praying was all messed up. Instead of, as we saw in Philippians chapter 4, letting their requests be made known to God with all prayer, supplications, and thanksgiving, they were praying with the wrong motives. They were selfishly asking God for things that would bring them personal 
pleasure. Every man out for himself, every man envious of what others are getting or trying to get, even from God, selfish desires are dangerous things. They lead to war within ourselves and conflict with others. James is showing us that when our praying is wrong, our entire Christian life is wrong because we are at war with ourselves and with others. Warren Wisby, who was uh, with Back to the Bible and Moody Bible Church for several years, put it this way. People who are at war with themselves because of selfish desires are always unhappy people. They never enjoy life. Instead of being thankful for the blessings they do have, they complain about the blessings they do not have. They cannot get along with other people because they are always envying others for what they haven't do. They are always looking for that magic something that will change their lives when the real problem is within their own hearts. Then he adds, Sometimes we use prayer as a cloak to hide our true desires. But I prayed about it can be one of the biggest excuses a Christian can use. Instead of seeking God's will, we tell God what he is supposed to do and we get angry at him if he does not obey. The anger at God eventually spills over and we get angry at God's people. More than one church split has been caused by saints who take out many or their frustrations with God on the members of the church. Many a church or family problem would be solved if people would only look into their own hearts and see the battles raging there. James shows us the danger of wrong praying, and then in verse 8, he shows us the danger of wrong thinking. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Twice in this short letter of James, he talks about those who are double-minded. And in both times, it's in the context of prayer. So let's turn back to the, the first chapter of James at verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5 of James, there's this tremendous prayer promise that uh, probably many of us have memorized. James chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But there is a condition. There's a condition here of being able to receive from God, and the condition has to do with our, our thinking. Verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Our theme in chapter 4, Philippians, is what? Spiritual stability, standing firm in the Lord. And here we see just the opposite, the man who is unstable in all his ways. It went from his prayer life to his thought life, which produced total instability. Many Christians are like corks in the waves. One moment their faith is up, the next moment it's down. They are tossed by the surf of the sea. They're driven by the winds, what they hear and what they believe. One pastor or preacher on TV says one thing and then another says another thing and they're just all over the place or they read this or that. The word double-minded there literally means to have two minds. Two minds. One moment their thinking is one way. Yep, this is the way it is. And the next moment they're thinking it's over here. They ask God for something and think, oh yeah, I'm going to get that. And then they move in their thinking. And if God did deliver, they're not in a position to receive it. 
And James says, don't let that man expect he'll receive anything from the Lord because if the Lord did answer their prayers, they wouldn't recognize it if they saw it and they're probably not in a position to receive from God. And instead of experiencing peace, then they experience conflict, they experience confusion, they start to blame God, they start to blame other people. Wrong praying, wrong thinking. And then James tells us about wrong living. Back to the fourth chapter of James, the war chapter. And James' description here is, is sobering in verse 4 of the fourth chapter. On account of their wrong praying, on account of their wrong thinking, they have made themselves friends with the world, and therefore they're enemies with God. And James says, he doesn't mince words, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is the essence of wrong living that comes out of wrong praying and wrong thinking. There's no middle ground. We either yield ourselves heart and mind to the spirit of God and practice right praying, right thinking, and right living, and we experience his peace, or we yield to the flesh and find ourselves torn apart by worry, anxiety, and being torn with conflict with God and with others. And instead of the peace, we experience even conflict within ourselves. So let's go back to the peace chapter. Enough of that negative stuff. <laughs> but it shows us how far wrong somebody can get when they start down that path. Philippians chapter 4 at verse 9. This is that point in those thriller movies where you think everything's going bad, it can nothing change, the music changes, and it becomes this light, airy tune. You know, things are going to get good from here on out. How do we know the peace of God? How do we know the peace of God that passes all understanding? How do we experience the God of peace who is with us? And, and Paul tells us in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 4, he says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and what? The God of peace will be with you. So here we come to right living, right practice. Right living is a necessary condition to knowing the peace of God. We cannot separate outward action with inward attitude. What we think and the motives behind our prayers are integral to our actions, what we do, what we say. And if our actions are not right, if we have the wrong actions, it always results in unrest. But righteousness results in peace and rest. You don't need to turn to it. I found a neat word picture in Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah chapter 32 verses 17 and 18. And I like the way that Isaiah put it here. He says in verse 17 of Isaiah 32, and the work of righteousness will be peace. The work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. How many of us want some quietness and confidence forever? <laughs> righteousness produces peace and stability, and everyone who lives in righteousness will, should come to expect that. He goes on to say in verse 18, and I love this picture, then my people will live in peaceful inhabitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. How would you like that to be the state or the condition of your heart? Your heart's living in peaceful habitation. It's a secure dwelling, 
undisturbed resting place. Knowing God's peace and the peace of God. That is the peace that Jesus promised when he told his disciples and told us in the upper room, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives do I give unto you. So how do we experience this peace? An application I've called this practicing the whatevers. Not the bad attitude of whatever, but these are specific whatevers. Our minds are to dwell on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, excellent and worthy of praise. So how do we practice these things and experience the God of peace? Paul says to the Philippians, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In essence, he said, as he's told us elsewhere, imitate me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And practice truth, honor, justice, purity, loveliness, and the God of peace will be with you. The truth is, we have not received and learned these things until we live them out. Isn't that right? And Paul balances four activities here, learned and received and heard and seen. So first of all, Paul talks about the Philippians, what they have learned and received from him. And of course, Paul is talking about the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. When Paul first came to the Philippians and he met with that women's prayer meeting down by the river and they learned and received from him and then he taught the gospel and the word of God to more numbers and the Philippian jailer and all that tremendous story and the earthquakes and all that kind of stuff and they received it. They heard and received it. Now it's one thing to learn a truth, to know it in our heads, but it's quite another to receive it inwardly and make it part of who we are, part of what the Bible calls the inner man. For example, Paul thanked God that the Thessalonians had both learned the word of God and that they had received it in a way that the word of God had done its work in them. How do you get into God's word in a way that it gets into you and does its work in you? Incidentally, after we finish the book of Daniel, maybe after the rapture, (laughs) we're going to be talking about in our adult Sunday school class how to study God's word for yourself. In other words, how to get into God's word yourself so it gets into you and performs its work in you. And Paul said to the Thessalonians, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you had heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. They received the word of God in such a way that it performed its work in them. Facts in the head are not enough. We must also have truths in the heart, but it must also translate into acts of life. Uh, When we were homeschooling our kids for 20-some years, (laughs) maybe it was 20 years, there's there's a, a, a saying or a principle in homeschooling that's important for all of us to know because it's called, sometimes they call it, learning in order to present. Learning in order to present. In other words, we don't learn just so we can parrot back facts on a test. You haven't learned something, you haven't received it until you can present it to somebody else. 
So in homeschooling, you have to prove not only that you know the facts, but that you can tell somebody else, you can show somebody else, and you can show them how to apply it. So you have to do a presentation, you have to prepare a talk, you have to put together a science project that shows what you have learned, you have to be able to explain that, you have to say how it applies to life, you have to explain it. Any of you who have ever taught a Bible study or a class know exactly what I'm talking about. How many times have you said, in preparing that Bible study, I got much more out of it than the students did? Because you knew that you had to explain it to them. And so, God, two things are happening. The Holy Spirit works you over before the class starts. And the other thing that is happening is, you know you've got to explain it to somebody else. That's because you were purposefully learning so you could present the truths. You had to learn the truths, you had to apply them to their own life before you were able to show them to somebody else. When it comes to God's word, you have not learned it until you have applied it and you show someone else how to live it. And isn't that what you do when you share your testimony with somebody? That's exactly what you do. You share what God's word for God has done for you and in you. How the truth of God's word and the love of God has changed your experience of him and changed you. That's what you're doing. And that's why Paul could lift himself up as an example of how to live. We wonder, well, yeah, he's the Apostle Paul, but, you know, isn't that a little arrogant to say, hey, look at me, imitate me as I imitate Christ, you know? And we wonder, that's because he's saying the things you have learned and received and the things you have heard and seen in me, practice these things because you know this is uh, how God would have you to live in these matters. And so the second is heard and seen in me. In Paul's ministry, he not only taught the word, but he also lived it. And he lived it in a way that his listeners could see the truth of God working out in his, his own life. And think about where he is when he writes this letter. He's in prison in Rome. And how can somebody like that say, I have learned to be content in whatever I am doing? You know, my love is for you. It is because they knew the truth of God's word was working out its life in Paul. Things you have heard and seen in me. Paul was encouraging the Philippians to follow him, an imperfect sinner, as he pursued his goal of Christ-likeness. And the result the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. You know, as we read this, Paul wanted more than anything else for his experience of the peace of God to be the experience of the believers in Philippi. Can you imagine knowing the peace of God so much that I just can't stand it if they can't experience either. You know, in other places, he wanted them to know the love of God and, and those kind of things. And, you know, I'm quoting, you know, in order for Paul's experience to be his experience or their experience, they had to learn the word, they had to receive it, they had to hear it, and they had to do it. And so do we. You know, I'm quoting James a lot this morning, but in chapter 1, verse 22, he said, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. There's that wrong thinking again. We are deluded, whatever, <laughs> whatever that means in our minds, if we are not doers of the word and we're deluding ourselves. But the result of right praying, right thinking, and right living is experiencing the peace of God. 
Paul says, the things you have heard and learned and received in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's not only that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, but we also experience the God of peace. God who is with us in our lives. We experience both his peace and him himself. When you read Paul's letters, his favorite and most often used expression for God is the God of peace. The God of peace. God is the God of a lot of things. He's the God of love. He's the God of grace. He's the God of mercy, a God of compassion. He's the God of all comfort, which is one of my favorites in 2 Corinthians. He's the God of justice. He's the God of power. He's the God of light. He's the God of life. He's the God of of a lot of things. So why does Paul refer to God as the God of peace so often? And it's his favorite description. It's because that was Paul's personal experience with God. And that's what he wanted the Philippians to know of God, the God of peace, to know and experience the God of peace. Paul is talking to the Philippians about being spiritually strong, stable, tranquil, firm, content in the midst of any difficulty. He's talking about being adequate for life. He's talking about being sufficient for all difficulties. He's talking about being able to do all things through Christ who gives him strength. He's talking about being content in everything and in anything. And that's why he calls God the God of peace. When you read Paul's letters, you find that Paul was constantly and consistently in trouble. He was in trouble everywhere he went. He talked about his imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A day and the night he spent in the deep. Frequent journey in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from his countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, danger among false brethren. Where else is there? In labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then on top of all that, he says, I have the daily concern of the churches because he was concerned for them. And in all of this, Paul had come to know God as the God of peace. Most of all and above all to the Apostle Paul, God is the God of peace. And that's what Paul learned of God. He is a God of peace. And that's what Paul wants us to know and experience of God. I want to close out this section on spiritual stability by looking at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians comes right after the book of Philippians. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, if you'd like to turn there. Page 1441, if you're using the Bibles in the rack. As we live the Christian life, the peace of God is one test as whether we can know whether we're in the will of God. Have you ever thought about it that way? You know, maybe you've said that before. I just have peace about it. I just have peace about it. And that's the peace that God gives when you're in his will. And how do we know if we're in God's will? How do we know if we're obeying him, following him, 
loving him? How do we know if our praying is right, our thinking is right, our practice is right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 gives us a good application here. Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you are called into one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The, translated, the word translated rule there in rule in your hearts means to act as an umpire. To act as an umpire. What does an umpire do? The peace of God, the peace of Christ, acts as an umpire in our hearts. In other words, the peace of God is one test of whether or not we are in the will of God. If we're walking with the Lord, then the peace of God and the peace and the God of peace exercise their influence over our hearts. But whenever we disobey, we lose that peace and we know that we have done something wrong. God's peace is the umpire that calls, you're out. You're out of God's will because you do not have his peace. Then look at what Paul says in the next verse, in that in verse 16, because then he brings it back to the truths, to the word of God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. When the peace of God rules in our hearts and we know that it, we have God's peace because we are living in him and, and with him, doing his will, learning from his word, and even on a practical sense, and we come together on a Sunday morning and we sing the psalms, the hymns, the spiritual songs with thanksgiving. We are teaching each other what it means to know the peace of God and to know his love. And then he says in verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Shall we pray? Father, the song's been running through my head all morning this morning. Peace, peace, wonderful peace coming down. Lord, coming from you. Father, what a tremendous and exciting thing to know that no matter what we go through in life, no matter what the stressors are, no matter what those things are that want to take us out, especially take us out of your will, Father, that you are the God of peace that we can come into your presence. We can open your word. We can learn of you. We can come into your presence and with thanksgiving and all prayers and supplication, let our requests be made known to you. Father, that when we are feeling the pressures of life, the stressors of life, Lord, may those push us, pressure us as it were, into your presence, into your presence, where we may know that peaceful habitation of our hearts, where we may dwell in a secure place in you. And Father, we thank you for that place in you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.